0: Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. So, the existential question in life, at least according to William Shakespeare, to be or not to be, (laughs) maybe for the sake of the podcast today, it is going to be, should I stay or should I go, in the immortal words of The Clash. When it comes to uh, solutions, decision-making, whether to do something or not do something is one of the most basic and elemental choices (laughs) that we have to make. Yes, it's preceded as with choice by thought, and then it probably always needs to have some sort of action or behavior attached to it, Uh, but that's usually when we get to do uh, some trouble with it. If we don't do it, then then certainly it's not going to be a behavior, and with that, then whatever the choice, we've already sort of decided no, (laughs) and with that, we're not going to get whatever result we could have possibly had, needed, whatever the demand was. On the other hand, if you do something and then the outcome is not so great, The feedback on that might be, well, I won't do it again. And then there's those conditions where it's really very difficult to determine your yes or your no. Uh, Take in all the data, get all the information, try to make a good choice, even with feedback. Others, maybe, input. But should you just do something? And you get feedback, oftentimes it's still somewhat ambivalent because in that notion of thinking and thought and cognition and reasoning it all out and trying to determine what's good or what's not good, again, it can get very confusing. And then add to that the possibility that there may be other things that contribute. Psychology Today, April of 2022, do I need a nudge or a nap? Unsure whether to power through or rest up, a checklist of questions can help you make the right decision for your health, physical, and mental health by Ellen Hendrickson, Ph.D. Excuse me. A close friend's birthday party, certain to be a lavish affair, has been on your calendar for months. Yet when the evening arrives, the idea of attending seems overwhelming. Are you too tired, or do you just not want to go? Differentiating between true exhaustion and simple avoidance can present a dilemma. It is important to listen to your body and take care of oneself when we're tired. But claiming self-care when, really, when we really want an excuse to cop out disrespects both our own needs and our social ties. Those who live with the already draining effects of anxiety, depression, or chronic pain face the added challenge of discerning whether they need a gentle push or some R&R. In what situations might you be best served by a pep talk and diving in? And when might you benefit more from putting on some soft music and curling up on the couch? To answer that question, start by asking yourself these four. Question number one, is this the rule or the exception? Let's start with an analogy drawn from research on chronic pain. Usually pain is a sign to slow down. If you're hobbling around on a sprained ankle or you got a concussion two days ago, definitely take time out. But when pain becomes chronic, the equation flips. When pain is part of your every day, your experience chronic low back pain, stiff knees, fibromyalgia, or lasting fatigue, too much rest, rest can make you feel worse. In such situations, it pays to push a bit. Pace yourself, of course, by moving your body and engaging with life can improve your stamina and energy rather than drain it. The same wisdom applies to mood. If your day was the emotional equivalent of an acute injury, for instance, your cat died, you were ghosted by your crush, go ahead and rest and recoup. But if your low mood or anxiety is persistent, you've felt tired and sluggish all winter and now it's March, or you'll always get the urge to bail before seeing a friend, it may be better to err on the side of pushing through. Take the case of Anna, a woman with social anxiety. Mysteriously, she always felt worn out when faced with a social decision. When her roommates asked her to join in planning a group trip, she told them she was too exhausted to think about it and delayed until they got so fed up they made plans without her. When a friend hinted he might have feelings for her, Anna felt her energy, or felt the energy drain out of her so thoroughly, she couldn't even engage with him. In therapy, Anna came to recognize that her sudden energy drains were a form of avoidance. She was then able to push through her dread and resistance. Her tiredness fell into the chronic camp. It was the consistent rule, not the exception. The corrective was to push rather than avoid. If the distress you feel is out of the ordinary for you, then rest may be the resolution. But if the norm, but if it's the norm, give yourself a nudge, especially when considering the next clue. Question number two, have I enjoyed this before? If you're feeling too tired to say, take a spin class. Search your past experiences for information. Do you usually enjoy spin class? <clears throat> Are you usually glad you did it when you're finished? In general, if you've previously enjoyed whatever you're feeling ho-hum about, give yourself a gentle push to go. But if you're always but if you've always hated it, stop torturing yourself. It's fine to bail. Question number three, can I picture myself there? You're trying to decide whether or not to go to kickball practice. It's been a long day, you're tired, but it's unclear whether skipping practice is a corrective or a cop-out. Try this. Picture your activity in your mind's eye. Visualize the field, smell the grass, hear the pop of your foot making contact with the ball, feel your legs running the bases, and imagine chatting with your teammates. Once you've pictured it vividly, ask yourself how you feel. If every ounce of your being is saying no, your reluctance is probably genuine. Go home and rest. But if you feel motivated or energized or enjoy the visualization, even just a twinge, go ahead and go. You probably, you'll probably be glad you did. Notice that I didn't say imagine yourself bailing. If you tend toward avoidance, picturing yourself or picturing letting yourself off the hook could put you on the edge of a slippery slope. Avoidance then becomes a potent reward and the behavior more deeply entrenched. It's a relief to get out of a thing you're dreading, even if you'd probably end up enjoying it. Imagining bailing makes it less likely you'll turn around, lace up your sneakers, and put on the team t-shirt. When it comes to visualization, always picture doing the activity rather than avoiding it. Question number four. Is this in line with my values? If you're still not sure whether you're genuinely tired or just being avoidant, consult your values. Is the activity you're considering important to you? would doing it solidify your view of yourself? Putting a high value on your health, for example, means you should probably head to the spin class. Valuing your friendship and reliability might mean it would behoove you not to miss kickball practice. In the same vein, is the event important to someone you love? If you want to stay home, but your partner has been looking forward to a hike together, it may be better for you and your relationship to go. If it's really important to someone you care about, and you're in a healthy, non-manipulative relationship, it has importance for you too. Then again, if your friend invites you to a political rally, but you've never even heard of the candidate, or your book club is seeing the movie version of that novel you didn't like, it's fine to set this one out. Particularly if you're battling chronic illness, anxiety, or depression, and they need to pick and choose your activities wisely, your values make a good filter. Don't push yourself to do everything only what's closest to your heart. A final note, if you decide to show up, commit, make your decision a waffle-free zone, throw yourself in wholeheartedly, and you'll have a much better time than if you were there with one foot in and one foot out. Again, Ellen Hendrickson, PhD, psychology today, April 2022. Do I need a nudge or a nap? avoidance goes along with psychotherapy. To some extent, we're all somewhat avoidant. It all depends probably most on whether or not the threat that brings about the avoidance as measured by the emotion of anxiety, maybe not so clearly fear, but for some folks definitely fear can thwart or hold back, hold us back by disincentivizing the motive. Instead of seeing good outcomes, we generally, when seeing it through that filter, and depending on how much that filter has become part of who we are, we may end up always seeing it in somewhat negative terms. This idea then that that obviously may not be the best for us, or with that, if we continue to see most of our choices in life, particularly those that might have to do with, as with this article, as this article suggests, some social dimension, you may quickly find yourself being avoidant of social situations. Uh, Calling that social phobia maybe is appropriate, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has some sort of genetic or physiological basis, although there may be some predisposing factors that go into anxiety in general and social situations just to may have become somehow attached to them, conditioning we've associated without maybe intention certainly uh, or any forethought randomly. (laughs) The social dimension or dynamic to the anxiety. But even then, one has to, if they want to be social, overcome it. And who wouldn't want to be social? Because being social is so good for you. So when it comes to the first question, as much as the author posed it in context of, is this the rule or the exception Generally speaking, it's somewhat counterintuitive to think if it's the rule that you're always feeling some element of pain associated with an activity, again, for instance, being social, then the more intuitive aspect of that, I suppose I could say, is, well, don't do it. There must be something wrong with either it, the situation, ourselves, the pain lets us know. But as the author also pointed out, oftentimes it would be those very things that continue to represent pain, even if there may be some actual physiological basis to it, that still may be good for the body. It's probably not good in the most general and obvious of ways to not live your life. Whether there is a physical or a psychological pain attached to it, some things are just critical for life. One of those things being some social dimension you can't be, as the old saying goes, an island unto yourself, <laughs> unless you be surrounded by a lot of water and really no way to get all the things, as was stranded, that you might need for survival. And as much as you may be able to supply some of those things for yourself, generally speaking, the whole basis of society and relationship is that it's most adaptive to, When we're able to do that in some relationship dynamic. So, the idea of an acute pain, psychologically speaking, might suggest that, well, the injury isn't so much a part of either personality, as I've been saying, a pattern of conditioning, avoidance as with then somehow giving into fear or anxiety. And with that then may represent genuinely in that acute sort of dimension. Something that for that moment unexpectedly has happened. It's aberrant, abnormal, not usual for you. And hence, you're probably not going to run the risk of trying to be an island. And totally isolate yourself. And then, even as much as you might not miss being social for a day or several days or even a week, maybe some can get away with it for maybe a longer, more uh, imminently so extended period of time, months possibly. You can't do that for a lifetime. Now, the other side of that might also be, though, that most of the pains... (laughs) that we have also include other people. And so this notion of grief, loss, mourning, working through that, especially if it's attached to or as it would represent that, a strong attachment to someone else, it's going to take a while. Psychotherapy is good at that, helping you to work through the avoidance That initial pain leading to avoidance, the threat again of the loss, implicit loss, the hurt that goes with it emotionally. Sometimes that even translates to physical pains. There's also the possibility that in a physical dimension, your body has rendered you incapable of doing things that are not only tied to other people socially, but your own identity that's a big loss it's going to take some time to incorporate to take in that process that emotionally psychologically cognitively to a place of making some adjustments living a life without either the friend or the capability but it doesn't mean you stop living And truly the greatest measure of adaptability once more is it didn't end your life. And therein, there is always the greater imperative of, well, how do I go on living without whatever it might be? Person, capability, resource. But that's grief. Grief is overcoming, working through, sorting it out, learning new things, new ways of doing things, adjusting our own self-image, modifying our own self-talk, analyzing situations. Psychotherapists are very helpful when it comes to those things, especially since in your own mind and as much all of us are somewhat guilty of avoidance, your psychotherapist becomes then one that not only might see it most clearly, but could be in a position to better influence you, encourage you, maybe even push a bit to help you, again, press on or to power through, as the article describes it, for your better good. Especially if the analysis of what will happen if you don't, is accurate. And contrasting that with what will happen if you do as much as, again, that's so a win, that's success, that's adaptability, then I can say that. I have to do it kindly. <laughs> have to do it in some supportive, with positive regard, positivity, appreciation for the struggle, validate the feelings, allow you to express the grief, talk about the pain without being too dismissive. But in the end, my, my job is to help you to live, not to die. We don't want to pack it in and quit prematurely too soon. And should you even be at a point where you might have to consider something that major, that large, that it would be such it's chronic and terminal we still would want you to do all that you could to enjoy as much as you have until that moment would come. That's really what we have, in essence, is the experience. And living life, either psychologically or if you would introduce the concept to some, spiritual dimension, it's a quality thing then over even the quantity. But adaptability is Powering through, (laughs) continuing on. I want to remind our listeners, my listeners, that you're listening to Word with Dave Clay. So in those cases or situations where it's become more of a chronic pattern, even if it is legitimately something that's painful, generally in the end with proper prudence, (laughs) respect for where that line might be from harm to even with pain some benefit that divides those two concepts, we would want to encourage you to do the best you can, as much as you can, in the healthiest way possible. Question number two, have I enjoyed this before? (laughs) Well, if you've enjoyed it before, then the idea of avoidance might not even be there in the first place. And thinking about it in those terms may not necessarily mean that there wouldn't be something going on in that, again, immediate acute sort of dimension, either physically or emotionally, psychologically. But rather, if you've enjoyed it before, Then if you're not doing it now, or if that's become a pattern again of not doing as you've thought it through, and this would be the cognitive dimension. I started out with that on the podcast today. You have to think about it. Then there's an action that follows it. But if this would be the cognitive dimension, and you've had fun doing that in the past, and it's not related to something most immediate that's happened in your life, but again has become emergent as somewhat of pattern even with some aspect of personality. Maybe it's obvious. Maybe it is phobic. And, and phobias really are irrational. I mentioned social phobia specifically, but phobias are irrational. They're not reality-based. Definitely, if you've enjoyed it before, it's become this sort of irrational pattern of avoidance. You probably need to do it. And to be able to do it, (laughs) then question three comes into uh, play. Can I picture myself there? Well, if you've enjoyed it, you've already kind of begun to recognize that. As your psychotherapist, I may challenge you on that and kind of set it up so it's hard for you to legitimately (laughs) avoid. And with that, usually there's some element of denial and rationalization. And again, in the most respectful and positive of ways, I'm calling you out on it. Then we're going to say, well, just think about it for a minute, We know that you've enjoyed it in the past. Let's just play the scenario out. That's the beauty of the brain, right? We have this ability to imagine, to actually in our imaginings, experience in some physiological or physical dimension, even the emotions that go with that. Uh, Guided imagery essentially is just that. That you assist somebody in using that capability to take a look at. Not only for the sake of doing something, but for the sake of even when you can't do something, to relieve those feelings of anxiety, fear, or hurt. As with trauma, as with something that has happened, and you're fixated or you're so focused upon it, That all the emotions, the physiology, because you're reliving it in your mind, it needs to be changed. We can change the script by changing the thoughts, by using that power of imagery and imagination to be able to redirect and change the emotions and your mental state, emotional state that goes along with it. That's pretty good technique. Now, you might need some, again, assistance on the front end of it, as with the psychological counselor once again challenging you, assisting you to stay on task. But if you cooperate, I'm pretty sure by the time the exercise, even if it's in the therapist's office, is going to turn to something much better or good, and we may need to make some modifications because we don't want you to then think, well, I can't do that, and then feel bad. But, but the picture I'm trying to present here, no pun intended, with the imagery, is you control your emotions by what you think, by using this incredible power of cognition, thought, imagery, that all falls under that. You're not just nerves or physiology. You're not just bound to, unfortunately, something that has happened which has, maybe it's a whose, who has possibly scripted and in that there's been pain associated and you can't do anything to change the narrative or to change the script. You can. It's yours. I'm just aiding from the outside. Now, if you don't want to cooperate, I can't do that. I can't brainwash you. A lot of people perceive hypnosis to be that way. You can't just brainwash someone's mental paradigms, their identity. We would want to. That would be pretty dangerous, at least not in a single or a series of somewhat limited sessions. But over time... You can change or rewrite the script and even to some extent the identity, but it's you. We want you to have the say. We want you to tell us what's important. We want you to describe for us what's consistent with who you are. And if you've had pleasurable experiences in the past doing something, then that means that it's probably rightly aligned with who you are. And that brings up question number four. Is this in line with my values? Now, the article didn't mention identity, but I would hope that who you are aligns well with your values. But at the same time, values don't always mean something good or something positive. Sometimes people's values, what's most important to them, is all rooted, again, in failure, Once more, somewhere along the line, they've had a very, very significant loss or experience, possibly as much described that way. It's traumatized them, and they've left the situation feeling inadequate, inferior. Maybe it's been something that occurred really early in their life, during those formative years of identity or personality, And because of that, it's changed not only how they see themselves, but it's contributed to this conclusion that life isn't safe. And with that, the anxiety on an emotional level, that psychological pain, the feeling of anxiety and fear, has then had its most Prevalent or prominent of effects to create this avoidance, and they're trying to be an island. They're trying to avoid situations that cause pain. But with that, it spread to everything because potentially everything has some dimension of anxiety or fear attached to it. Novel situations, as much as loss, uh, it's something new. We framed it mostly within. The, the uh, dimension or the aspect of loss, but something new, doing something exciting, doing something for the first time, always has a bit of apprehension. Hopefully it turns out well, so once again, you don't get any bad associations, additional psychological pain that feeds back into it, or would have in that feedback loop the power to come back in and influence not only that idea of avoidance, but the overall paradigm, your efficacy, your prowess, your ability, your power to be adaptive, to influence your world in a positive way. But again, that's sort of where avoidance fits all of us because we all have that learning that we have to do that's part of adapting, and we all have to run that risk that it may not turn out well. And even if it's at our own hand, there may be, especially if it's at our own hand, we own it a bit more, even than if somebody's done it to us. But don't let that become part of who you are. Don't let that become so associated with who you are that it creates a failure identity. We want you to value yourself, value yourself in a positive light, not a negative light. I know I could say devalue, but it's one and the same. It becomes part of your virtue or your character. But presuming that you do have some element of conscience, and it's not totally or horribly destroyed by the time or the moment or the point that you get in to see me or someone again who does what I do for a living, professionally. Hopefully, there's at least enough positives, enough positive valuation. You have gained some sense of competency or mastery. It's not all failure. It's not all pain. It's not all anxiety. That when you're having that experience, when you're looking at a situation and you're saying, you know, there's something about this that's not lining up right, or there's an element of dissonance, It should be easier, and why isn't it? That's a good question. (laughs) I like to ask questions like that because it gives us a chance to take a look at those core values. It gives us a chance to talk about such things as identity and failure identity. It gives us a chance to discuss why it's important to properly process all of these things so that you learn from them And in some ways, then, also disconnecting who you are from what's happened to this extent. I want you to feel the efficacy, the mastery, the sense of accomplishment, of overcoming, of working through, of closure, of good self-esteem. I want you to remind yourself of that. But to do that properly, you also have to at some point separate the loss lest it becomes part of, again, who you are. Who we are has absolutely nothing to do with either what somebody else does to us or even what, if it doesn't have a person attached to it, a situation or circumstance brings us. We have to separate that and look at it objectively. That is very, very difficult because most of us, all of us, most of us as we would measure it in adulthood, but all of us from the very beginning have a really difficult time separating ourselves from the world around us. That actually is, according to Piaget, Jean Piaget, a significant developmental milestone. The ability to think in such terms as to be able to separate ourselves from those things around us and the things that happen to us. But again, if something catches us earlier on in life, earlier meaning before we actually accomplish that milestone, or in something bad happening before that milestone is accomplished, we get stuck there, our identity sort of begins to incorporate or pick up all of this as with personal significance or relevance, you're going to carry that into your adult life. That's why we spend so much time looking at childhood issues, not to just blame it on somebody else, but to realize you're blaming it on yourself or to recognize when you haven't successfully done that or know how to do that, Stepping outside of yourself, seeing yourself for who you really are so you don't amass, or, or this doesn't amass itself, attach itself again to you, your identity, who you are. Because once that happens, it's sort of like getting dirty. You need to get a bath. It's like cleaning that off, scrubbing. But that's what we do with a lot of trauma work as well we assist the person in separating themselves from what's happened to them so that we can then begin to look at what's happened to them and see it for what it is objectively after we scrub the emotional reactions or at least we know what to do with those emotions so we can figure out what it means to the person, how to overcome it, how to not be triggered by events or circumstances, how it's because of disassociation, which is a form of denial, which is ultimately a form of again avoidance, the person really is eliminating or limiting—better word—their experiences in life. And with that, not only a good experiences, the possibility of good experiences, but maybe directing themselves toward such the denial of good experiences and only living in the memories of the bad experiences. That's not right. (laughs) You're not going to win and succeed, quality or quantity, in terms of adaptation or adaptability, if that's happening. Again, I'm in the best place, best position, seat, to see that objectively, and I know that from my studies, from what I've learned, from my experiences, from doing what I do, again, professionally. I'm the expert at that, at least for the moment that you're in, with me. And that's my job, is to help you see it objectively and be able to understand and maybe even so take you outside of yourself so you can examine yourself Now you can do that naturally without help but again that's a little bit of a challenge and I'm not sure that we can ever do that as well within ourselves as we can when we include someone else. That someone else has to be again neutral, objective, see you positively, (laughs) be sworn, swear an oath to do no harm to not want to set you up or in that vulnerable position that that represents to manipulate or take advantage of you. But that's what we do. (laughs) We are ethics. We're bound by ethics. We're ethical in our practice as with professions outside of even psychotherapy or psychological counseling. The medical profession does that. Even extend that to other professions that recognize you're trusting someone else to offer you objective feedback. How important is it? It's very important because it helps you to understand, as with, again, question number four, is this in line with your values? Is it in line with not only your consciousness, but it could be an element of conscience. It's core to who you are. It's core to what you've come to believe, not only about yourself, the people around you, and life itself. We want to do a good job. But if you're, again, avoiding situations because of any of those things that I just got through mentioning, it's probably not going to be helpful. And in the end, it's just going to continue to worsen. The more you run from fear, the more fear has power over you. And I do believe, as much as that sounds like a truism, I do believe it's true. You have to face it. We do it systematically. We do it progressively. We do it in that same way, safely. Again, a safe space, a safe environment, a healthy, safe relationship. But we still have to do it. (laughs) And for the sake of you, if you should come see someone like me, it helps you overcome it and work through it. So this notion that making a decision, (laughs) whether it is to be or not to be, as existential as that might be, philosophical as that might appear, or whether it's even something a little bit less, should I stay or should I go? It's not always so obvious or so easy, and especially if there's a pattern of either pain or avoidance because of that pain, either physically and or psychologically, and especially for the sake of the podcast, psychologically, which includes emotions and thoughts, and always, always, always has some social dimension to it. It becomes in that way central to adaptability to not only survival, quantity of life, but the quality of life that you have. So, April 2022, Psychology Today. Do I need a nudge or a nap? Written by Ellen Hendrickson, PhD. (laughs) You come see me, I'm going to always be nudging. But I'll do it with all of this and possibly... More that I wasn't able to maybe capture as fully or well as I would have wanted to in the limited time we had today on the podcast. But I'm moving it out of the the right motive, the right paradigm, the right mindset. But that's why you come see me. (laughs) That's what... I'm certified. That's why I'm licensed. That's why I've taken all of those years and given it to education and study. I maintain continuing education so that I'm current with all the new data, all the new information that's coming in. I'm in the best position to help you if you can trust me to offer you that feedback. So, why would I not (laughs) agree with the, I think, essentials of this article? The best solution is to never run from it. And if you need some help facing it, seek some help. But make sure it's professional, it's sound, it's ethical, it's got all of this safety, these safety measures attached to it to guarantee or do the best that could be in the way of assurance. Really not a guarantee, but it's an assurance We're going to do it rightly, or at least as right as is possible, assuming everything that might be happening at the time, most of which is outside of the therapy office. In my office, I'm in charge. I make sure of those things being there. I hope that you're not avoidant. (laughs) I hope you choose to be. And for the most part, I hope you choose to go. And with that, I also hope you choose to come back and join me again for the next podcast, my next podcast, of Word with Dave Clay. And until then, I want to wish you good health and good mental health. Thanks.